0: Very few artists make all of their work from their practice, and I know from experience, the artists who do make 100% of their income from their creative practice, they're not happier and they don't feel more fulfilled. It's just a different relationship to it because it's a job. And when something is a full-time job, our relationship to it changes.
1: It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world inside a podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hello, my passion maker. This is Miriam Shulman, host of the Inspiration Place podcast. You're listening to episode 140. I'm so grateful that you're here. Today, we're talking all about moving beyond creative hurdles. This interview is going to motivate and inspire you to create, no matter what your circumstances are. Today's guest is a Los Angeles-based consultant for artists and art organizations. She's the author of Make Your Art No Matter What, Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles. With a master's degree in counseling psychology from the University of Missouri, she provides career consultation, grant writing, fundraising, financial, and strategic planning services for artists and art organizations throughout the U.S. She teaches at the California Institute of the Art School of Theater and teaches workshops at universities, companies, and art spaces throughout out the US and she's the author of Make Your Art No Matter What Moving Beyond Creative Hurdles. Please welcome to The Inspiration Place Beth Pickens.
0: Hi everyone. Hi Miriam. Thank you so much for having me here. I love hearing my bio in your voice. It sounds so good. Even with
1: my thick New York accent. I love it. It sounds serious. <laughs> I'm actually writing a book myself, and I just had that discussion with my agent. I was like, yeah, I know they probably want to hire a voice actor for my book, but you know, the, it has to have somebody with a New York accent. No, it's got to be you. It's got to be you. you I can agree. Book. Come on. Tell them you
0: want to read it.
1: Yeah. I said, put that in the contract. I literally get dozens of requests every week from people pitching me to come on the podcast. Book authors, they have, uh, what do they call? PR people, blah, 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 blah. I get so many and almost everybody gets my form. Thanks for submitting. Fill out this form. We'll let you know. (laughs) Don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> but when I saw the title of your book, I told my assistant, hey, hey, see if we can get a copy. And when I got I loved it. I'm so glad. That's the best thing in the world is when an artist loves the book. It is so important. This book couldn't have come out in a better time because my artists and you know myself included, I don't want to make myself other in this conversation. We are all struggling right now. It is so hard all the things we used to have. You wrote this book pre-COVID, right?
0: Right. In 2019.
1: Yeah. It's hard enough to get your mojo on in the best of circumstances and to like have museums taken away, have lunch dates taken away, have all these things taken away. Artists need this book that you put out.
0: It's been a really hard time yeah. in that specific way of being an artist. It's hard for all of their personhood. But their, their artist self has really been eroded by the pandemic.
1: I saw this Disney. Well, all Disney movies are problematic, but just push that aside. Moana. It was mentioned in a book and I thought, I, I don't know the cultural reference. I better go check this out. The heart is taken out of the goddess and then everything shrivels up. And I've been telling my, my artist, that's like what's happened to us. We need to like restore our artist heart so that we can be creative again. This is, we're burnt out. Something's. Missing from us. I have to go watch
0: Moana. That brought tears to my eyes when you said that. I was like, God, that's so
1: sad. It has the usual like cultural appropriation that I don't like about Disney movies, but the music is beautiful and it's visually stunning. So maybe you and your wife might want to watch that.
0: Totally. Just for. I mean, we are going to Disneyland soon, so. Oh, okay.
1: All right, (laughs) good. Be your prep trip. Maybe you don't feel the way about Disney that I do. I mean, I still like it. It's kind of like how you like sugar. You know, it's, it's bad awful for you. And incredible. Yeah. Right. No, Disney. So,
0: Disney cool. as a whole is so. I mean, it's like it's like a trash fire that I want to go warm my my hands next to.
1: <laughs> that's a really. That's a really good way of putting it. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So this is in the, one of the first chapters talking about not enough time for art. I hear this from artists who are on all levels of the art spectrum. Those who are doing it just for fun. And they can't figure out why they're not able to make time for something that's enjoyable to them. And what you said, quote, the world will only try to pull you away from your creative practice.
0: It sucks. And it's so true. (laughs) 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 the world and you will try to deflect away from your art practice all the time. I think the issue with time is kind of twofold. One, it's the actual problems of being too busy and having to unpack our lives a little or turn some things down. And then there's the perception. So there's the literal and perception about time and our relationship to it. And both, I think, have to be addressed with a person who's struggling with time, which also is like 95% of the artists I've ever worked with time, there's a reason it's the first chapter in the book, because it is an issue for everyone and it causes so much anxiety. Mm. We fixate on the amount of time we think we have or don't have and the quality of it. And I think what's really poignant over the past 13 going on 14 months of the pandemic, is people's relationship to time has really warped for a lot of people. It's become really warped. And for a lot of artists I know, they may have found themselves with a lot more time. And so then they equated, well, then I should be doing something with it. I should be effective and productive and make all these things and be a genius. And all the stupid memes about like, well, Shakespeare wrote blah, 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 during the blah, blah, blah. Whatever. It's nonsense because this is not, we're not all at McDowell colony together. It's a pandemic. You're yeah. upset. You're anxious right. and traumatized and depressed. So that's not the quality of the time is so compromised. Yes. That I, I don't want any artist to think that something should have happened with it. If you survived it and you're okay and your loved ones are okay, that's a miracle. And we can build back up your art practice. We totally can, but no expectation that something should have happened because you had more time during a pandemic.
1: Yeah. I I love the way you said that because I I see that there's a lot of shame layered on top of just the regular not, you know, not feeling the usual mojo and what we talked about at the beginning, like the things that like I normally do to fill myself up, lunches with my friends. Nope. (laughs) Go to a museum. Well, actually I can do these things. Now I can do them. For a while, I absolutely couldn't do them because they just weren't open, but I can, but just in a limited way.
0: Everything is so compromised and unavailable and people's coffers are empty. Artists have to have their coffers refilled in order to do things.
1: Yeah. Staying on the subject of time, my husband and I are big fans of Rabbi Hachal. I love what you said and what you brought out that he said, Rabbi Heschel, about Judaism being a religion of time. And that really is part of the Judeo-Christian tradition, marking the time with a period of rest and making time sacred. I would love for you to elaborate on what your advice you give to artists who who are many whom are not Jewish.
0: A fraction of, of my clients are, are Jewish. Some of them, actually a lot of them are Jewish, but very few of them are interested in anything about the Jewish tradition. And yet I bring to all of my clients the concept of this concept because it's so beautiful, making time sacred. Yeah. And that, that is transformative for an artist to make time sacred. And it is so counter to what our culture tells us about productivity and working nonstop. It's certainly counter to the Protestant work ethic that I grew up in, this working class idea of you work and work and work until you keel over and die. Well, well done. That was a beautiful life. When I first read this book, and then I started reading it every Friday night on Shabbat to really have it sort of sink into my DNA, I realized that this is sort of a gift and that that gift would turn into something transformative for my clients. The idea that they could make time sacred and that rest would make the other time a different quality. So I ask all of the artists I work with to pick a 24-hour period. It does not have to be the Jewish Shabbat, and it doesn't have to be the Christian Sunday. It doesn't have to be any particular day of the week. But I ask them to pick a 24-hour period that they will commit to having a boundary around in relationship to the world of paid work and striving. That includes anything related to their art practice and anything related to paid jobs. Certainly, there's other work they'll be doing. There's always labor with children and homes and our own bodies and shopping and cooking and cleaning and the stuff of life. But having a boundary for 24 hours with the world of that kind of work, being a worker in that way sort of freshens up and rests that part of the self. And I think artists really benefit from it because artists, you all are a very distinctive class of workers. You're the only worker I know of that works paying jobs in order to do your job. And that makes you different from me and the rest of the world. When I'm not working my job, I'm not then going to the job I really want to do and mean to do. I'm doing other things. And so artists, I think over the years, really believe that seven days a week, they just have to be working and that can corrupt their relationship to their practice. That can really, and just erode their personhood. People need rest. And so I ask them all to do this. People fight me on it. They hate it. And at first they dislike it. And I tell them, that's okay. You can curse me. You can dislike it. But I just want you to commit to it for maybe a month just to see what happens. And it always starts to change something inside of them.
1: One of the things you just said reminded me of a different part of the book. I'm not even sure if this is on my list of questions, but I love the idea you have about how our practice does not have to be what fully supports us. It's okay if we have an alternative stream of income that supports our art. Do you want to say a little more about that? Yes.
0: I love breaking that myth for people that being an artist means you make all or most or some of your money from your creative practice. Some artists do. Many do not, including listener, some of your faves, some of the people you think are amazing and brilliant and geniuses. They may make all or some of their money from other ways of living. Very few artists make all of their work from their practice. And I know from experience, the artists who do make 100% of their income from their creative practice, they're not happier and they don't feel more fulfilled. It's just a different relationship to it because it's a job. And when something is a full-time job, our relationship to it changes. And in fact, those artists who make all of their money from their practice, I always ask them to sort of discover and carve out and protect a corner of their practice that is not currently touched by money so that they can have a different relationship to it.
1: What you said just now is just so wise and so brilliant, because at one point, I was fully only doing portrait and fine art work. I did feel happier when my income was also supported by online classes and other things because that put me in a position that I could turn down commissions that I didn't Mm -hmm. want to do. Mm -hmm. And when I was fully supported by just my commission work, I didn't feel I had the luxury to do that. And now I do. So my creativity Mm -hmm. is actually helped by that additional income stream. Yeah. It's wild, right? When, when something becomes
0: 100% a job, of course, our relationship changes to it because then it's fully intersecting with capitalism. And capitalism... I mean, I love money. I want money. I want all my clients to have money. And when something is about money as it's sort of sole focus, it can change our relationship to the thing. I want people who want to earn money from their work to do that, and I help people move in that direction, but we're always looking at it for what it is and what that means. And how to protect their practice so that its biggest value is not money. That's one of the outcomes. That its central value is its foundational to, to their well-being as a person. That an artist, my whole thesis in life and my professional life is an artist is someone who has to make their creative work because it's how they understand being alive. And it's how they process their lived experience. And that, again, is what's distinct about artists from me and the rest of the world who benefit from it. Sure, I totally benefit from that, but I don't need it the way I see my clients need to make their work or they feel bad if they don't make it.
1: That's so true. All right. You had some wisdom around this, how to set employment boundaries. So those artists who do have work that is not their creative practice, what is your recommendation to them?
0: I think one is thinking about, can you give your paid day jobs or whenever time you're working them, can you give them like 90% or 92%, still an A, but not a 100 or 110%? Can we turn down what that job has to be and then what it it chiefly exists to pay for your life so you can go have a life. So I think one, I I notice especially for art, a lot of artists teach. A lot of artists do many things, but a lot of you teach. And teaching is a very draining kind of job, particularly if you're doing it remotely because you're just sort of talking into a computer. But teaching and many other kinds of work there's sort of an endless pocket of work. You could just keep pouring and pouring and pouring into it. So I ask people to first evaluate the kinds of paid jobs that they have. What are they doing to them? How much are they asking of them? What are some natural boundaries we can set? So for example, with people who teach, I'll ask them to think about, are there some commitments, committees, for example, that you could let go of? Can you slow down being a perfectionist in the world of your paying work and just do a good, solid job? Even in turning down from 110% to, say, 90%, we can find so much capacity that can be opened up for their creative practice and be opened up for their art, where I want them to give more of themselves because they get so much back. Your paid job, you pour into it, you get a paycheck back. And that's the exchange. Your creative practice, you pour a lot into it and you get many other things back too. And sometimes with artists, I find that we have to actually find them a different kind of paid work. I think of it as paying work that interacts neutrally or positively with yourself as an artist, but not negatively. Mm. And if you find that your paid work is actually just draining your practice, then we might start to brainstorm what other things could you do for money that it's sort of easier to have a boundary with, or when you're not there, you're not thinking about it. And everybody is different.
1: You had said in your book that if if you have a day job, maybe do B plus work because your B plus is someone else's A minus, but I would even take it a step further because even the work that I do, that is my forward front facing stuff. Sometimes I'm only striving for B minus. It is so easy to get caught up in that perfection of this high achieving thing of what you think it needs to be. And even your B minus is better than most people's not doing it at all. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's
0: the grade I've given everyone during the pandemic. You only have to do a B minus at everything in the pandemic. I
1: love that. Okay, so we're fully on board with B minus. By the way, I loved her book so much that I decided to give away books to my listeners. and here's how. I was going to limit it, but we're not limiting it, actually. But you have to follow all these steps. Number one. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts for The Inspiration Place before five o'clock on Monday, May 17th. Do that by going to shulmanart.com forward slash iTunes. If you do not have an iPhone, you can actually do this on your desktop. Just go to iTunes over there. Then take a screenshot of your review just before you submit it and send it to us in an email to support at theinspirationplace.net with your name and your shipping address. And then we will send you your copy of Make Your Art No Matter What. Only restriction, yes, you have to live in a place that Amazon ships your book to. If you don't know how to leave a review, check out this link for simple instructions, shulmanart.com forward slash review dash podcast. There's written instructions there as well as a video to walk you through how to leave a review. And of course, we've got the full details of this giveaway in the show notes. Go to shulmanart.com forward slash 140. If you're on your phone, the link's right there. Now, if you're wondering what's the catch, there isn't any. I would just love your review in exchange for the book. Good luck. Now back to the show. Resistance to asking for help. Now, I just want to set some context before we dive into the book. I've been hearing this a lot from my community. So, I've been inviting my listeners, and, and listener, you can do this now, shoot me a direct message over on Instagram. I'm at There, I, I would love to talk to you. Some of the conversations that I've been having is around that concept of not asking help, even in things that surprised me. And if you hear yourself in what I'm saying, don't think I'm talking just about you. I'm bringing this up because there's a lot of people saying the same things to me. They're afraid of investing in a website. They're afraid to invest in whatever it is. But really what it boils down to is it's this resistance to getting help to make things easier. So what, what do you think are the reasons artists don't ask for help?
0: I think it's socialization, the many intersecting identities and the socialization attached to them. So for example, not only women or people who've ever been socialized as female, but certainly all of them too, (laughs) have been socialized to believe that I can only give, I can't receive, I can't ask for things, it's wrong, it's selfish. How many people have been told asking for anything is selfish or narcissistic? So socialization is a huge one. And then I think artists have an extra layer of socialization on top of that, where they've been told messages like, if you ask for something, you seem desperate. I hear that all the time. You seem desperate. You have to wait for people to offer or come to you. Because if you ask for something, it's it's like thirsty or needy or desperate. Or that somehow, if your work is, quote, giant quotes, good enough that you don't need to ask for something, like the world will come to you. And none of these things are true. None of these things are true. And people get help all the time, often that's made invisible to us. There's so much help to people who have astronomical careers because of their proximity to power and capital, maybe because of their personality and willingness to ask, often luck. But I find that the more people ask for of all kinds of things, opportunities, introductions, emotional support, money, the more they get. It's sort of like probability. The more you ask for, the more you'll get. And Importantly, the more you'll be rejected and turned down. And that's a muscle I want all artists to strengthen. The ability to detach from being told no or not answered or rejected in some way, the ability to experience that and detach makes it easier to sort of rebound and then continue asking.
1: Yeah, that's a perfect segue to my next question. It's probably because I was going through your book in order and this is how you wrote it. Artists who get stuck on that perceived no. And I see this all the time when I'm coaching artists. They'll say, well, I, I asked, but I haven't heard anything. I was like, well, that's not a no. Oh my gosh. I'm living that right now because. My book just
0: came out. I'm doing tons of promotion. And so people are emailing me through my website. They're DMing me all kinds of things. And I'm very careful to respond to everything that's real. Like not if you're trying to get me to sell Ray-Bans, but you know, artists who write to me or people who want to talk to me, I will respond to everyone. It's just right now there's a backlog. And so I will get to people, but I have had experiences where someone will be upset and say, you didn't write back. And I have to say, I didn't write back yet. I get a lot of emails. I have 70 clients. I have students. I have a lot of people who email me in a day. And sometimes I just have to make myself sit down and answer 10 at a time, and then I get a break. So I'm living that right now, telling people that, no, no, no. If you didn't hear back, you didn't hear back yet. You just didn't hear back yet. It's very possible you're going to hear something.
1: You don't know the circumstances around when they received your email. So they could have been standing in line at the grocery store and they saw your email with the quote for whatever it is. You have a commission's $2000 just because you didn't hear back doesn't mean it's a no. They just may not have been in the position to write back. They're standing there with the groceries and they just happened to open your email when they were there. And then they got home and they forgot all about it because their kid had a car accident and you know now they're dealing with that. So yeah. silence is never a no. no. Make them say no to you. Just keep right. asking until you get a no or a no. yes.
0: Absolutely. It's such good advice. Don't say no for a person. Exactly. Get the no from them. Exactly. (laughs) Because then you have closure too. Then you're like, okay, now I know and I can move on.
1: Yes. One thing you had put in the book is making a goal of getting 20 rejections, which I I think is a beautiful way of putting it. That's over what period of time? I think maybe a year
0: or whatever a a person wants to go after. I saw an artist tweet that a long time ago. Yeah, but just like go after rejections. Yeah, micro way. You're going to get stuff. And you're going to get really good at moving on from rejection.
1: One of my most successful artists inside the Artist Incubator and that show, we'll link to it in the show notes of Dawn Trimble. She got so many no's, but what people see on social media are the yeses. Mm -hmm. Because she's not going on social media and saying, I got rejected today. She's only telling about, hey, I got this opportunity at Brainbridge and I got this opportunity and all these people bought my art. But she's not going on social media and telling about all the no's. But in order to get Those yeses, she had to be willing to be vulnerable and get all those no's.
0: Files and files of no's.
1: Some of it were micro no's, like some are big no's and some are small no's. You know, it Mm -hmm. depends what it is they're going for. Some no's
0: are a paper cut and some will take you out for a day. (laughs)
1: Right. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts.
0: (laughs) All artists make money doing so many things. In my chapter on work, I make a a partial list of the different jobs my clients have had or do have. And people do all kinds of things for money, all kinds of things, because we live in the world and have to pay for things. That's normal. And I want to normalize that instead of what is sold to us as this is what success looks like for an artist.
1: Mm, It's beautiful.
0: We have to detach from that because it's not true and it's not real and it doesn't have to be meaningful to us.
1: All right. The next section is about diving into fears. So, first fear, which I relate to, when you have been in the creative desert that is 2020, 2021, and now you finally do have time to make art, that fear about making mediocre art.
0: <laughs> yes. What if I make something that's bad or mediocre? And then what does that mean? It means it's all over. <laughs>
1: You're right. never going to make it's anything really good
0: again. Right. Which goes back to what you were just saying about dawn. It, all of the work that we love in the world—the books, the films, the visual art—all of it—we're seeing the the end product. We're seeing the end of something that a lot of time went into. We're not seeing all the work that that led to making the thing that was really wonderful. And artists have to—you have to move so much trash out of the way. You have to get so many ideas out to get to the thing that you're going to make. And a lot of that is work that you're going to think, this isn't very good. And, and I'm not being mean to myself. I'm just like, oh, this isn't very good. But it still serves a purpose. It's getting you to the thing that's really good. And the only way to that thing is by getting all the other stuff out of the way. It's like you got to write. For people who do you know, any kind of writing practice, people have to write. They just got to get the garbage thoughts out of their mind to drop in deeper people in every discipline find that they have to sort of like work through whatever's happening to get to an idea that's interesting to them. And along the way, yeah, lots of stuff that you'll think is bad or mediocre, but it's valuable. Even if you're not going to ever show it, it's still valuable.
1: Sometimes you just have to move the paintbrush around is the way I like to put it. But it's no different than I think, you know, dancers, they go into the studio and they're doing their plies. It's not always a performance of Swan Lake. You got to warm up. Yeah. And visual
0: artists, I think, are at a disadvantage in the warm-up world. I don't think everyone's taught that, no, you have to warm up. You don't just walk into the studio and feel like, okay, be brilliant, paint something great. You have to warm up. That's right. Linda Berry is my favorite example of this. She famously talks about that the first thing she does in her studio practice is she hand paints the alphabet and that's her warm-up practice. She doesn't just start making brilliant comics or wonderful work. She has to warm up. Not every discipline is equal in that training. Musicians, People who do body-based practice, they have been taught you have to warm up. But everybody, all artists have to warm up.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. I'm so glad you brought that up. All right. So let's talk about how to become aware of your fears. What is your suggestion for that?
0: You have to start listening to your brain, which is terrifying. To listen, to actually pay attention to what you're thinking, which we do a lot of things to avoid our thoughts because they are... Harrowing when we actually pay attention. But just simply writing down and noticing your thoughts, most of them are fear and judgment. That's just most of what our brain does. And that's not bad. That's just human. It's just a human experience. But I think to first identify fears and how you identify fears is just noticing thoughts, writing them down. What are the thoughts? Because sometimes we think something is just a baked in truth and it's actually just a fearful thought that we've been basing our behavior around. And it's just a thought. It's just a fear. So I think we have to become aware of them. And the way we do that, certainly therapy helps. Talk therapy is very good for helping another person draw fear out of you. But really talking in any context, not even with a helping professional, can help have your narrative reflected back at you. So somebody just repeating what you're saying back, you will notice like, oh, wow, I'm really afraid. Those sound like judgments and fears. That's the hard work is actually not overcoming or navigating around fear. I think the hard work is
1: actually identifying them. Feelings aren't facts. (laughs) They may feel big. 12-step classic. Feelings are not facts. Don't believe everything you think. Thank
0: God I saw that bumper sticker. Especially when you're PMSing. No. Don't believe the thoughts. Don't believe
1: the thoughts. (laughs) What emotions serve as motivation to make art? I think all feelings can.
0: Because one of the gifts of artists is you take feeling and experience and you put them into your work. Mm. And then we, the audience get to experience that feeling. And maybe that's a feeling we have a hard time experiencing, but all emotion and experience is fodder for your art making. Not all of it's easy. Different feelings will be a, a better sort of direct link into the studio. And some might be really hard, but feelings are one of the gifts that you have to put into your work. That is like what we, the audience need is the feeling you're putting in.
1: But what if you're feeling lonely and isolated? Okay.
0: If you're lonely and isolated, we have to counter that. Loneliness and isolation can erode. They're different from solitude, which many artists need solitude. But loneliness and isolation are a different quality of aloneness. And that's a quality that I think erodes a practice. Everybody needs a creative community, a group of artists, any discipline who want good things for themselves and each other. A first person to turn to when you're feeling isolated may be somebody in your creative community, another artist who certainly understands and has experienced it too and can sort of be with you in that feeling.
1: Fears of marketing. One thing you said, I'm just going to quote you, artists who avoid marketing tend to fear or want to control what other people think of them. Mm -hmm. Ah, let's talk about that. That was so good.
0: Because marketing and publicizing your work is you taking up space. It's taking up space, which is very frightening for people. And sometimes people have been told they shouldn't or that it's bad to do so. So you're, you're taking up space and you're making assumptions that your work belongs in the world. And those are scary prospects for people. And the bigger you let your life become outside of your own control, the less control, which was always an illusion anyway, but the less control you have over other people's perceptions and what they say and think and their opinions. And I've experienced that in real time with my books. It was so scary to put my first book out because it meant sort of like being visible in a way I had never been and never intended to be. But to sell a book, I couldn't hide. To sell a book, I had to take up space and tell a lot of people about it and do lots of marketing, things that made me supremely uncomfortable, which made me even more empathetic to what artists go through. But particularly in modernity, in the crowded world of our digital age, there's so much stuff. There's just so much stuff. Going back to Shakespeare, it's not like there was a million playwrights in his town. You know, he was probably one of the main playwrights. There wasn't a lot of competition for people's eyeballs. Think about just the sheer volume of not even art, but content. How much stuff is plugged, is stuffed into our lives that we don't even want that we can't get away from. Hmm. The noisy world. It's very visually and orally noisy. And so artists have to actually kind of like crowd in and say, here I am. Here's what I have and do the work to help their work get to the audiences who want and need it. And that takes effort. And that effort is uncomfortable, but it's not going to kill you, which sometimes I think artists think, this will truly kill me. If I have to do this, it will kill me. And it will not.
1: I speak also to artists who, who feel that they just want like their prince charming in the guise of a gallery to come and rescue them. And I, what I tell them is, that's fine, but you have to market to galleries. To get into a gallery, and when you're in a gallery, they're going to want you to market. Yeah, they're still going to want you to market. You can't get away from it.
0: You're going to experience this with your book too. Like the publisher, they're going to say, "Okay, so tell us your marketing plan." Yeah, no, I,
1: like it was a sixty-page document. It took me six months to write this thing. Like people say, "Well, haven't you written the book yet?" It's like, no, you don't understand. We a marketing plan. Yeah, they want to know everybody book. I'm friends with first.
0: Yes. Yes, so many (laughs) spreadsheets of every person you ever met.
1: Yes, exactly. And then, wow, and how color code them by how well I know them.
0: Yes, it's intense. It's intense. And all of that stuff feels so counter to why people are making the things they want to make. But it's sort of like for artists, I think you know that your work is meaningful. It means something to you. You probably have heard it means something to other people. And so it helps your audiences to do the work on its behalf to get to them so they know about it. You're not bothering people, they want to know about your work.
1: Yeah, I spoke to an artist recently who was starting over after 20 years, and the advice I gave her is like, "Well, you know, if I were to start from scratch and I had no podcast and I had no social media, I would just tell everybody I knew that I was an artist and have that authentic conversation with them and I and I said, "And by the way, that is how I started my business 20 years ago before there was social media." I right. working it into every conversation. Oh, you want to see my art? What's your email address? Thank you. Right. You're reaffirming it to yourself and you're telling the universe. Exactly. You're taking up the space. You're, you're asserting this
0: is who I am and this is what I do. Every time you tell someone else, exactly, you're telling the the world, the universe, and you, you're reminding you, this is who I am. This is who I really am.
1: Yeah everybody get the book make your art no matter what moving beyond creative hurdles we have linked it in the show notes I, but i am giving it away oh you have only until may 17th thank you may 17th <laughs> so if you're listening to this podcast after hey it's a paperback just get it just get it just get it
0: this is never the... a bad thing to buy a book
1: no I'm like give it away right <laughs> buy it anyway okay best 17 bucks you'll ever spend Okay, we've included links to the book in the show notes, shulmanart.com forward slash 140, as well as the details about that giveaway. So send us a screenshot of your podcast review before Monday, May 17th. And all giveaway details, again, are in the show notes, shulmanart.com forward slash 140. All right, Beth, do you have any last words for my listeners before we call this podcast complete? Yes, keep making
0: your work. If you take nothing else away from me or anything I ever say or write, keep making your work. It will make your life better.
1: Beautiful. Thank you, Beth. All right. Next week, we have the one and only Terry Cole. And trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. Make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button in your podcast app. Thank you so much for being with me here today. I'll see you same time, same place next week. Stay inspired.